while they're heading back, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28? We'll read verses 16 through 20. Our meditation this morning will just be in verse 16, but uh, uh, I want us to to get the context for the, the whole passage. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to ask you now for our children as they're going back to, to children's worship, as they're getting together in the room and starting to settle down, and, and we just pray that this will be a time of, of life for them, that they'll come to know the Savior, and that they will be able to sing all the days of their life, all the way the Savior leads me. What have I to ask besides? That they would follow you. And for us, O oh God, as we look to your word in Matthew 28, we ask that your spirit would uh, be here, that you would enlighten our hearts to have understanding of what you have communicated, and that more than understanding, O oh God, that we will believe it. Believe it by living our lives consistent with that truth. We ask that you would do this for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Um, The New Year's sermon, uh, for me, has always been a very important sermon out of the year. There are certain messages that I find it's, it's just really important to, to focus on. Obviously, there's Easter. Uh, Christmas Eve is important. But uh, the message at New Year's is, is just key because I think New Year's is just a, a great opportunity. I mean, God gives us this huge sign with neon lights and they're blinking and, and they're saying, hey, how about if you stop and reflect upon the last year and look forward to the next, right? And somehow we miss that, but, but to, to not miss it. And to not miss it as a church and to, to take time. As you know, I have different uh, theme for, for preaching each year and this, this coming year, the, the theme is going to be uh, follow Jesus. It, it may be for the next two years because a, a large part of our preaching is going to go through the book of Hebrews. Um, and I'm not going to go through it as rapidly as we went through Daniel because I wasn't sure I would survive that. Uh, we're we're going to slow it down a little bit, but it won't be like the five and a half years I spent in Ephesians years ago. So we'll somewhere in between there. But we're going we're gonna to be looking at what it means to follow Jesus for this next little bit. And so I, I, I wanted a, a message that's going to help us just, just begin to set that tone as we think about the coming year. And so I ask you to think about for a moment the purpose of Providence Presbyterian Church. Now, some of you are peeking. I, I like that. You say, oh, that's written down in our bulletins. Yes, it is. But some of us, if we're just thinking, our, the first thing that might come to our mind is, well, well, we got those three E's, right? Right? That's our purpose. It's to, to engage in relationship with people new to us. It's to, to equip uh, each other to uh, love and serve Jesus. It's to empower one another to own and expand the ministries, right? No. Anyway, <clears throat> but I just want to show you, I've got it memorized. But anyway, but, but we remember those. And is that our purpose? It's not, it's not our purpose. Do we do all that? Absolutely. It's very important to what we do as a church. Is our purpose to, to be a, a benefit to our society and to kind of help in particular the poor and to, to alleviate poverty? 
You know, we, we help with uh, poor in Zimbabwe. We've done things like that. We help with the poor in our community. We have special offerings. Our deacons do a great job of, of taking care of the needs of the poor. Is that what our purpose is? And all that's really good, and we're, we're supposed to, to help the poor, but that's not our, our purpose either. Um, we may think, well, refuge, right? We, we help survivors of abuse. We have refuge. We have voices. We, we spend a lot of time in this area. Is that our purpose? It's, it's a very, very, very good thing that we do. But it's not our purpose. Well, what about, what about we teach the Bible? We do, right? We work very hard to teach the Bible. But that alone is not our purpose. We support missions, right? And one of the things, actually, you know, as we just, uh, just finished my, my ninth year of serving this church, one of the things that attracted us to Providence when I first started looking at uh, the, the search for a, a pastor here is the first place I went on the website was your missions page. Okay, I want to know, what does this church do with missions? Okay, and I saw the number of missionaries. It's like, now this is important. And it is important, but it's not our purpose, is it? So we could say, well, worship. That's our purpose. The highest uh, ministry that we have, right? That's what we do uh, every week, and it's, it's kind of the culmination, and, 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 and as important as it is, even that is not our purpose for our church. The purpose for our church is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. In the only command in that verse that he gives us, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. What's our purpose? Make disciples in the Greek text is the only imperative that's there, the only command. Go is a participle. When he later says baptizing, it's a participle. When he says teaching, it's a participle. And the participles in the Greek language are, are highly developed, and they describe how you go about doing the command. And, it, and we'll talk about that in the next few weeks because we're going to spend the, next, uh, the entire month of January going through these uh, four verses, five verses. But to make disciples is what we're called upon to do. That's what the church is called upon. Every church is called upon. It is the command that Jesus gave to us through the apostles. It's really important for us to maintain our focus on our purpose. Or what we do is we begin to focus on good things and we miss the better thing. We begin to focus on all these other really good things that we do or any of these other good things that we do and we miss the better thing, which is to make disciples. And we have to recognize that there is a, a danger of us drifting and, and moving away from that. One of the books that we've gone through as a session uh, is entitled Mission Drift. And uh, Victor Naka, if some of you remember him, he's, he's preached here. He's uh, from Zimbabwe and he's in charge of all the Africa missions for Mission of the World uh, for our denomination. And, and Vic put me onto this book uh, called Mission Drift years ago, which talks about this. And there's one chapter in particular that I love the title. I think it's beautiful. It's called Death by Minnows. Get the picture? It comes from a, a quote of an individual who says, well, you can be swallowed by a whale or eaten by minnows, and the end is the same. Like, well, yeah, there's kind of, he says, but one of them is a little more painful. You've really got something there, and it, it just kind of is, is very, very vivid. And the reason for death by minnows is because it's the minnows, it's the little things, it's the little good things that can turn us off 
from the better thing. And so I want to read to you just uh, four observations that uh, Peter Greer has uh, in, in this chapter. He says that uh, mission true organizations, number one, they seek clarity first. Having mission clarity is like mapping your destination. Having an endpoint helps, helps you communicate your route, your culture, hiring practices to reach your journey's end. Whether or not others agree, they know where you stand. Individuals can join you for the entire journey, find areas of common ground to ride with you for part of the trip, or amicably find another path. Number two, uh, mission true organizations acknowledge that the pressure to drift is a constant. Without intentionality in small decisions, mission creep occurs, even with people fanatic about the mission. Employees must live and breathe the mission daily. Members must uh, breathe the mission daily. We must ever be remembering what our purpose is, or we will indeed invariably drift from it unless we are working diligently to maintain that vision in front of our eyes. That's a part of why I try on a regular basis to preach about the mission and, and, and the vision of Providence Presbyterian Church. What is our purpose? What is our vision? So that we keep it before it. It's one of the reasons why the session, before every session meeting, we read our vision together to remind us of here's what we're doing. Number two, three, mission true organizations realize there's a point of no return. Organizations like Harvard and the Y have drifted so far that their identity has transformed. They have become what we call mission untrue. No ministry or organization is exempt from this course, no matter how central an organization's Christian identity is. We have seen this even in churches, have we not? To where they have drifted away from the gospel of Jesus Christ to become something far less than what that is. And we must recognize that the danger is present for us. That's not just a them thing. That's an us thing. And it can happen to us. And number four, mission true organizations make hard decisions to correct drift. If an organization is drifting far from its initial purpose, then God can empower leaders to turn it around, but it often requires drastic measures. Pain avoidance is the fastest way for mission drift to devastate an organization's Christ-centered identity. Just incredibly helpful words to remind us of the potential and the danger of us getting off track and getting a little off track and getting a little off track and to remind us why we need to sometimes come back to the basics. What are the basic issues? That's one of the reasons why the next two years will be focused on following Jesus. It's also one of the reasons why we're looking at this passage today. In Matthew 28, verse 16 and 17, it sets the context for fulfilling the purpose of the church. It tells us what was going on and who was it spoken to when the purpose of the church was given. It's the context. It's all that was going on. And we're going to look at that the next two weeks to understand that context to help us recognize what's necessary in order for us to fulfill our purpose. To fulfill our purpose, what we're going to see from verse 16 today is to fulfill our purpose, we must live as disciples of Jesus. That's the beginning point. That's where it starts. I love reading a lot of the Puritan authors because no matter what they talk about, uh, the first point is almost always the same. I love it. If there was like a, a Puritan author who would write about uh, how do you mow your lawn, 
He would say the very first step of mowing your lawn is to have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot properly mow your lawn if your relationship with Him is not right. To which I say, Amen! And thank you for reminding us, because we forget, right? And so we start out, if we're going to fulfill our purpose, the beginning is we, as individuals, must live as disciples of Jesus. Let's look at at what that means and how we go about that. And the first is to know that He chose you. That's the beginning point. To know that he chose you. Verse 16. But the eleven disciples. When we talk about the disciples or apostles, we usually talk about the twelve, right? Right? Sometimes it gets a little bit confusing when we throw in Matthias and and, uh, Paul. I'm not sure how all that works together, but but usually we talk about the twelve. But here he says the eleven. Well, yeah, we, we understand that. Okay, yeah, that's just because, you know, Judas had already died. We, we get that. He had betrayed the Lord and, and he died. And so we, we, we get that. So he's just talking about the 11. Is it just a, a word that's just arbitrarily just happens to be there? Oh, well, they're 11. I don't think so. I think it's very specific. He could have just said, and Jesus said to the disciples, couldn't he? But he said, the 11 disciples. And he draws our attention to that. To understand that, I want to look at uh, a few passages and help us begin to see how these simple words, the two words, 11 disciples, are significant for us. In John chapter 17, verse 12, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this. He says, while I was with them, that is the disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see what Jesus has said here. Is none of them have perished except one, except the son of perdition, and he perished to fulfill the scripture. So that Jesus is showing that he was aware from the very beginning that Judas was not going to continue. That there is one who, according to the faithfulness of God and his statement that he had written out before all of this began, there is one who would fall away. And that one did. So that the eleven are there because they were the eleven that God had determined would not fall away. Think about uh, Jesus' words. And we see where this uh, is, is written out in John chapter 13, verse 18. In John chapter 13, uh, Jesus has just washed their feet and they're having uh, the Lord's Supper. And he's instituting that. And Judas is there with them. And he's talking to them. And in verse 18, he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Indicating not all of you are them. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And so that Jesus is pointing out to them that there is this one who would indeed fall away. But the eleven are the chosen. And he speaks this in the presence of Judas, who would walk away. And even that, I believe, was a gentle call of the Lord Jesus Christ to Judas. Don't do it. But even so, he did not heed. We see in uh, John chapter 15 and verse 16, um, now, this is a different context. It's still the upper, upper room discourse. 
But in chapter 13, they were in the upper room. Then they leave the upper room and they go off and they walk through the vineyard. And that's when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches and has that discussion. Then they're on the the Mount of Olives, I, I believe, undoubtedly at this point. And so now it's just the 11. Judas has gone off to betray Jesus. And it's at this point that Jesus says to them, you did not choose me. I don't know about you, but I'd have been sitting there as one of the disciples saying, I thought I did. (laughs) I kind of remember that day. I, I, I thought that I did. But what does he say? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. He now has the 11 alone and he tells the 11, you did not choose me, I chose you. And he's reminding them that the, the operative part, yes, they, they, they had an act of their will in which they were going to follow Jesus, but he's saying, but, but the reason you were able to do that is because of what he had done. Remember, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. He gives us even that faith. He allows us to choose him, but it's his choice that allows us to do that, and he's letting them know that he has chosen them to... to a purpose. These 11 disciples who are about to receive the Great Commission, he's reminding them that they were chosen by him, that he had appointed them for this purpose. But that's not the only place we're chosen. It isn't just the 11 were chosen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. God made a choice before the foundation of the world to write your name in the book of life. He determined that he would redeem you. He chose you. Romans chapter 9. We see a, a, a more lengthy discussion of this as, as Paul is, is talking. And he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So he's pointing out, it isn't just because you're born from Abraham that you automatically become one of the promised children of Abraham. No, that isn't it. But it's the children of the promise, those that God has chosen to bring into that place. He says, uh, verse 8, That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Why is it that Esau would serve Jacob, even though Esau was the older? Because of God's choice. It was God who determined that. And one final is from John chapter 3 and verse 3, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And he answered and said to him, truly, 
Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen? Do you all remember that moment when, when you said, you know what? I'm ready to be conceived. I think these folks are the ones and, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm now going to be born. Right? Remember that? Just silly, isn't it? Isn't the same true about being born again? I can't born again myself. It's God who does that. Do I believe? Yes. Do I choose to believe? Yes. Where's the operative force? What enables he who is dead in his sin to believe? It's God who gives me that new life. So, so what does this mean? Okay, so we're chosen. So we have a reason to have intense pride, right? And to realize clearly, clearly, by the choice of God, we're better than all the rest, right? No, not at all. Instead, it should humble us to be humble. There is an element in which I, I need to recognize. Since, since it's God's choice, I'm utterly and completely dependent, am I not? I couldn't make myself get conceived. I can't make myself be saved. But it's God who does that for me. And that leaves me in a position of, of humility. But not humility in that I walk around saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm just a horrible, worthless worm, and worse than a worm, I'm just the food the worm eats. Worse than that, you know, we can just keep going on and on and on. And is that what humble means? I don't think so. Matter of fact, when we look at uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and what? Humble in heart. And so Jesus walked around all the time saying, Oh, woe is me, I'm a worthless worm, right? No. Didn't Jesus recognize his power? Didn't Jesus know who he was when he looked at Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, knowing that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead? Didn't Jesus know that he had that power? Didn't Jesus know that he was Lord of all of creation when he said to the wind and the waves, peace, be still? Right? Absolutely. When he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he knows that, right? And yet he's humble in heart. So humble doesn't mean thinking I'm rotten. I want to suggest to you that humble has an entirely different meaning. We see a little bit of it in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. You know, where it says, But have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did Jesus feel like it was necessary to walk around uh, all the time and saying, uh, I'm God, bow down. Matter of fact, I think it's amazing that you don't actually see him ever at any point saying to people, you ought to bow down to me right now. The closest he gets is when the, the, the Pharisees said, tell your disciples to be quiet. He says, yeah, that'd be horrible because then the rocks are going to cry out and that's really going to be troubling to you, right? Because he knew who he was. So humility doesn't mean thinking poorly of yourself. What humility is, is being satisfied with God's opinion of you. Isn't that what Jesus had? 
He was satisfied with the Father's opinion of him. So that if, if I am humble, I'm satisfied with God's opinion, and you have this super high view of me, and you put me on this great big pedestal, it doesn't bother me because I still know who I am. I don't think I'm the person you think I am. I think I'm who God thinks I am. The other side is, if you think I'm kind of a doofus, and maybe I'm not, or you think I'm a total loser, but I know that God doesn't view me as a loser, I'm okay. I don't have a problem with that because I'm satisfied with God's opinion of me. What is God's opinion of you? God's opinion of you is that you're forgiven completely and totally of all of your sins that you have ever committed or ever will commit. Those sins that you've committed in your mind, in your words, and in your deeds, Jesus has paid for them all and God looks at you and says, forgiven. Amen? That's God's opinion of you. Can you be satisfied in that? His opinion of you is that you are righteous. Not with the righteousness of your own, no goodness, no. But with the righteousness of the robe of Jesus Christ, which has been covering your nakedness and allows you to be accepted by God the Father. And he looks at you and he says, righteous, fully justified. Can you be satisfied with that? Amen. His opinion of you is that you are deeply beloved. You are the apple of his eye. He cherishes you with the fullness of his power. One of the things we used to do with the, the boys when we were little is we played a little game. We'd come up with how much we love each other and say, I love you more than a rainbow loves its colors. I love you more than a horse loves his running. I love you more. And it ends with God. He says, I love you with all of my power. Can you be satisfied in that? Can you be satisfied in his opinion of you in which he calls you a saint? A holy one. One who has been set apart unto him. Can you be satisfied in that opinion of you? I hope. Now maybe as we talk about those things, there may be some here who you have a twinge and you're thinking... I don't know if that's me. Maybe you're thinking, I really want that to be me. Can I invite you? Come to Jesus right now. That's Him inviting you. That desire that He would have that opinion of you. The fact that you want that is an indication of the Spirit inviting you right now. Would you say, Jesus, would you receive me? because of your death on my behalf. I invite you to that. Be humble because he chose you. But you know what else? Be confident. Be confident. Have any of you ever played the game Farkle? A couple, oh, I, I got a hole. <laughs> it is fun, isn't it? It's a silly game that is so much fun. And what it is is you're rolling dice and you're building up points, but if you roll, I can't remember, uh, if you don't have a certain number you know, on it, you get a farkle and you lose all your points, all of them. And if it's, a, if it's a six dice farkle, you lose everything, everything. It's just a horrible thing. And so farkle is really bad. And I love farkle because we live a farkle-free existence as Christians. And that's a tremendous hope. That gives so much confidence. I mean, think about, why did God choose you? 
Now, if you're writing down this really long list, that's not the point. <laughs> it's actually supposed to take us the other direction to begin to realize that, uh, well, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, right? Why would he choose someone who's dead in their sins? There's nothing to choose. Not only that, but I did nothing to earn his choice, did I? Nothing I could ever do that would warrant his choice of me. Jesus died for each and every one of my sins. I didn't die for even one. He paid the price for all of them. It was His grace that made me alive and gave me faith. Now just think about that for just a moment. I was dead in my sins. I did nothing to earn His choice. Jesus died for my sins. I didn't. God's grace made me alive and gave me faith. If all that's true, will He let me perish? Goodness, no. How could He? It'd be a violation of everything else that He has done. And so I can live my life confident. I don't have to be afraid. I do still sometimes sin, right? And that's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay because Jesus has already handled it. And there is hope. And I can live my life confident. I don't have to live my life in terror. I don't have to live my life in dread. I can live in confidence because He chose me. My friends, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He chose you. To live as a disciple of Jesus means I can live knowing that He chose me. I can be humble and confident. But it also means I need to choose to follow Jesus. To choose to follow Jesus. Look back at uh, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. The disciples did not just sit in place and say, well, if Jesus wants to meet me and worship in Galilee, he'll transport me to Galilee, right? It's not what they did. What did they do? They got up and they obeyed him, right? They got up and they followed him. Jesus said, go here, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow Jesus. It's what they did. They followed Jesus because their entire time with Jesus had been surrounded by a command that was mentioned. They heard it over and over and over and over again. And that command was, follow me. He says it over and over again. Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 19, we see Peter and Andrew called to follow Jesus. He says in verse 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In Mark chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus walks up to the booth. We see in verse 14, and he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. What did he do? He got up and followed him. It's what you do. It was what they were taught. In the, the rich young ruler, in Luke chapter 18, and verse 22, um, Jesus heard this. He said to him, One thing you lack, you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And then we see in uh, John chapter 1, verse 43, another instance of, of uh, this regular command of Jesus. 
the next day, uh, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. John chapter 12, verse 26, we begin to see this principle lived out and why he continually gives this command. In chapter 12, verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This principle that if you're going to be a servant of Jesus, you have to be a follower of Jesus, right? It's just essential. If you're going to be involved in the purpose of the church, you've got to follow Jesus. There's no other way. You've got to be a disciple of Jesus in order to fulfill the purpose of the church. That's who is to accomplish that. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a consistent command that Jesus gives to follow him. These verses are a part of, and I've got uh, multiple pages I looked up, uh, every time in the New Testament that uh, follow me is used. Um, and it uh, began to lead my thinking to how I prepare sermons for the next year and a half, two years, is by looking at how often he says this. But what does this mean for us? What does it mean, follow me? I think the first thing is that Jesus will set the agenda. Jesus will set the agenda. In John chapter 21, verse 22, Jesus is talking to Peter again. And Jesus said to him, uh, Peter is asking about John, who's just kind of walking near them. Um, and Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Very gentle, kind way of Jesus telling Peter, mind your own business, Right? That's essentially what he told him. Is, Don't you worry about John. You've got enough to worry about with Peter. Trust me, you've got more than enough to worry about with Peter, right? So you've got plenty. Peter, you're still a mess and you're going to have this. But, but your job, Peter, is follow me. He had an agenda for Peter and he points out and it may be a slightly different agenda than he had for John, which he was, right? They had very different paths that they ended up walking. Even in the situations that we saw the call of Jesus to follow me, what he said to the, the fishermen, he said, follow me, and they left their nets. But they could go back to their nets any time, couldn't they? But Levi, in leaving the tax booth, could never go back. When he left, he was now anathema from Rome because he left that job and could never get it back. But he had been a tax collector, so he was already anathema from his people. So he was in this no man's land. He lost everything in following Jesus. It meant something different. To the rich young ruler, he had to sell all of his possessions. Peter wasn't told that. It's Jesus' agenda was different for each person. We need to be able to follow Jesus' agenda, which involves us in, in obeying. It's much like follow the leader. You remember that when we were kids? Right? Follow the leader. What did it mean? It mean I needed to obey that person out in front, right? Hated that game, except when I was leader. I liked it a lot then, but... Uh, some of you maybe are a little like me, but, but it meant I had to, and I had to trust them to some extent, right? Because sometimes I didn't know where they were going. What happens if they start running? I didn't like to run. I got to run. How long are they going to run? Are they better runner than me? I could be in trouble. But instead I trust them. And that's what follow the leader requires. The well, same is true in our relationship with Jesus. Is we're going to obey him, but we're going to obey him because we trust him. We trust that he'll lead us in the right place. John fourteen fifteen. Jesus lays out that principle, and he says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, right? 
If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you, if you are following me, you're going to keep my commandments. It's what, what we're going to do. Look at Matthew 28, and we're going to compare verse 10 and verse 16 real quick. Matthew 28, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take my word, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Jesus set the agenda. He told them where to go. He told them what to do. And they simply chose to follow him. We've got to beware of uh, the subtle temptation. Think about Matthew 28.10. And the women are told, go tell my brethren to, uh, go, to the, go to Galilee and I'll meet them, right? And all of a sudden the women come up to them and tell them what to do. What goes on in their minds? I can see the, the mental gymnastics because I see it in my own heart. And the first question is, yeah, was going to Galilee Jesus' idea or is that your idea, right? Did Jesus really say it or did you say it? I think that that's really more of a word of, 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 of the women than it is a word of Jesus, right? It's very easy to people begin to look at the scripture and say, oh, well, Paul wrote that. I don't know that Jesus wrote that. And, and we begin to say, did Jesus really say? Is that really what he meant? Isn't that what the very first question that Satan asked the, the woman? Did God really say? And we can ask ourselves that as we think about the, the temptation to not necessarily follow. Did Jesus say it or did someone else? And then is he intending it for me? Is, he, did he, did he, is it for me? Am I the one who's supposed to obey that? I remember one time we were going to a basketball game and uh, it was at a YMCA and we got to the YMCA and we saw this sign and it said, do not enter, but it kind of looked like the entrance. And so I went in and then I looked and right next to it was another sign that said, this means you. <laughs> Best two signs ever. <laughs> it's almost like we need the scripture to say, you know, go therefore and make disciples. No, no, you right? That does mean you. Is he talking to me? Yes, he is. And the third thing is, but is that what he meant? Is that really what he meant? Maybe he meant that he wanted us to go to a spiritual mountain, right? Instead of a, a, a real mountain. A real mountain's hard, but maybe it's just a spiritual mountain. I remember one time I was at a church, I was in a Sunday school class, and they were talking about worship, and as they were talking about worship, someone raised the question about, well, what do we do? Because I think the focus was on the dignity of worship. And, 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 uh, uh, and someone said, what do we do when the, the Bible says that we're supposed to shout to the Lord? And the person said, well, I think what he means is you're to, to shout in your heart. And I couldn't help myself. I should have. I said, I'd like to hear that. It was probably inappropriate, but it really felt good. <laughs> because don't we do that? I mean, honestly, don't we do that? And we end up setting aside what, what's clearly given to us in Scripture. And we don't allow that to guide us. We don't really let Jesus set the agenda. And the second step is that we're going to have to overcome hardships. He sends them to a mountain in Galilee. They're in Jerusalem. Galilee, the mountain they go to, is 90 miles away. Imagine if we were in the Jerusalem of Pennsylvania, which is, of course, Harrisburg, and, and, and we're, we're, we're meeting and we get this message that we're supposed to go meet Jesus up on Mount Nittany. Some are saying, well, that's a pilgrimage I do anyway. But nonetheless, uh, but that's where we've got to go. That's about how far it was. Imagine walking there. And once you get there, then you've got to go up on Mount Nittany. 
work, isn't it? I know, I know. I'm still looking at some of your faces going, nope, nope, it's a joy. Why have we not been doing that already? That's what the question is. But, uh, but that's what they had to do. Why? Why did they have to go to Galilee? Why did they have to go up on this mountain, which many believe was the mountain from which he preached the, the Sermon on the Mount? Why? Go back to verse 10. Tell my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Because that's where God determined to meet with them. And doesn't he have that right? He does. We have to overcome the hardships that we face. We've got to ask ourselves, are there limits to my obedience? Where's the point where I'm going to say, no, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. And we've got to look very carefully at where that place may be for us. To follow Jesus. You probably, many of you know that I'm a, a, a big fan of Ernest Shackleton. And what he was able to accomplish uh, was just uh, astounding. Uh, that he spent all of the time where there, his, his crew, he's trying to go across the Antarctic. They never even get to the land of the Antarctic. They're on an ice flow for almost a year. Then they get off an ice flow and they have to spend months on Elephant Island. Uh, all this while, they're, they're living underneath a, a, an overturned um, boat. Now imagine just what that's like. And this, this, when the men were finally rescued, they were all black-faced because they'd just been burning uh, blubber oil for uh, over a year and a half and, and this horrible time. And finally he says, we've got to go get help. He gets in a small boat and he heads across the roughest seas in, in uh, the world. Happens to be during a hurricane, of course, right? It, that had to happen. But as they're making that final trip from uh, Elephant Island to uh, South Georgia Island, um, and they're going across this difficult time, is they, they have to check their, their uh, course from time to time. And every now and then there'd be a little bit of sun that would come out, and, and the, uh, I think his name was Worsley, would get out with his uh, instruments and would check the sun and the measurements while the ship is doing this and trying to get everything and together and, and figuring out exactly how, uh, and, and he would find out, okay, well, we need to make this course direct, uh, correction. And so we need to, to just kind of move a little bit to one side or another and off they would go and they would just keep on going like that. And, and to think of what that was like, and I think it was a couple of weeks that they spent on this boat trying to make this trip. I, I think it's just amazing. I think New Year's reminds me of that. New Year's is a time where there's a little bit of light that comes out of the clouds. It's a time for us to stop and reflect reflect on where we've come from, but also to correct so that we might get where we're supposed to go. It's a time of reflection and correction. And I like that. Matthew 28, 16 is a reminder of our goal, of where we're heading. That if we are going to fulfill the purpose of the church, each of us must live as a disciple. And that living as a disciple means that we need to know that he chose us and we need to choose to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy, would you please apply this truth to our hearts? Would you help us? God, you know my deep desire for us, each of us, 
here in Providence. To live as your disciple. To follow you wherever you lead. Oh God, would you so move in our midst and strengthen us that we may be that. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.